answers to? Check out swpcalendar.com to see when to join us for our next Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Justin James Garcia, son of Zen Garcia, and I'll be filling in tonight on Revolution Radio and every first Wednesday of the month from here on out to have a special guest join us for a live Ask Me Anything. I have with me special guest, brother, author, and researcher, Gary Wayne. How are you doing today, sir? Every month and... Uh, Looking forward to some of the questions. Yeah, definitely. It's always a great time, and we're really happy to be able to bring this program to the radio as well, to Revolution Radio. It's an awesome platform that I encourage everyone to uh, check out and support. Uh, definitely, I, I love all the, the slogans and all the mottos that they have, you know, where information never sleeps, and just the, you know, freedom slips. That term is so true in our generation i just uh i can definitely appreciate all the work that they're doing to give a platform where we do have free speech and where we can touch on you know things such as the illuminati and things like the new world order and the globalist agenda and you know we can think of a sense that uh the world does not support you know today i even i saw a uh, article that came out from an organization from a university that i attended that was supporting sex workers and they were pushing in georgia which you know georgia the state that i live in it has been known as a very conservative state but now they're pushing to decriminalize prostitution and that you know they're calling people who don't support that discriminators i mean there's just such a crazy like gap between the conservative mindset and understanding and wisdom and knowledge and then just this total indoctrination so i'm really glad to have you brother gary join us to be able to shed some light on some really crucial topics of our day you know we have some amazing questions that have been submitted we have a pre-made list of 14 questions that we'll be getting into tonight and if you are listening on revolution radio we welcome you all also if you are joining us on the youtube live stream we welcome you as well. After we get through the 14 question list, we will be moving into some live questions. So if you do have some live questions, uh, please join us on the YouTube chat at youtube.com slash Zen Garcia, and you can post your questions there. I'll be taking those. If we don't get to them tonight, we will add them to the list for a future episode. But uh, with that said, uh, how about we get into things, Gary? Sure. I was just... Uh listening to one of the comments about uh, you know, what was going on in, in Georgia and you're so thankful for the uh, you know channel like this and I think we all are but what I find ironic is that and I won't be very long with this it just ha had to sort of jumped out at me I should say something that you know the other side that is trying to stop free speech and you know anti-conservatives and anybody that's anti what they believe in and how they view things they're the cult of knowledge they're the Gnostics they're the polytheists these are the ones that control the universities and the libraries and everything but they're not a cult of 
all knowledge. They're only a cult of their manipulated knowledge. And that's what's really sort of going on out there. And once those wizards come out from behind uh, uh, the curtain, people are going to see, but it's going to be a little bit late when that happens. Very, very, very good point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's really crazy that there is such a... And, big organized evil in the world and that they've constructed this gigantic what seems like a power that we can never you know challenge and the you know the people that are challenging it are being silenced and being shamed and being you know cast out of society and uh, belittled and you know we were told that this is the way it would be in the end of days that good would become evil and evil would become good so you know, while my stomach does turn every time I look at the news and, and see, you know, any of my friends that I grew up with sharing this, you know, I'm not saying all liberalism is bad, but the progressive liberalism that that is about in our generation, it just makes me want to hurl even. But, you know, we have this hope. We have a hope in Christ. We have a hope in knowing the truth. We've been blessed that we have the opportunity to read the scriptures to study the scriptures and we're so blessed to have individuals like yourself who have done so much studying and research so without further ado i say we get into the questions we'll just welcome the holy spirit please father we humble ourselves before you father god we just ask that you would bless brother gary with your spirit to be able to shed true light and truth on to these questions that so many have and we thank you for the opportunity to join together in this program we praise you in the name of the messiah amen all right, so we will get into the first question. Let me pull it up. Okay, it's from Teresa Guerra. Why is it that not everyone can see the truth? You know, it's a very, very good question. It really sort of spins off of kind of what we were just talking about. And one of the things that I think sort of underlines all of that, and I'll backpedal into some of the the reasons why people can't see the truth. But so imagine this in terms of a world that is moving into very, very restricted knowledge and only the things that they want you to know, whether it's true or not, is going to be permitted to be read, talked about, spoke about, whatever. And then comes along the last seven years as this sort of gets worse as we go. And it takes the Holy Spirit to come along to work through people to speak against these powers. And yet, so many people won't listen then as well. And so what we're seeing right now for this resistance for truth is something that's just going to get worse. So I thought I would preface that in kind of answering the question because it's, it's like birth pangs and that what we think is stubbornness now, what we think is stiff neck now, what we think is all of the things that are blocking people from seeing the truth is only going to become entrenched more. So what's blocking people from seeing the truth, and I think this it's similar to this in times past, but not sort of on this level of steroids, so to speak, not at this level of, of energy, maybe in some microcosms, um, but not on the grand scale that we're seeing worldwide today. And so the first thing is, I would say, the reason why people can't see the truth is they've been blinded. And they've been blinded by 
a lot of things. And I also think they've lost their hearing to hear the truth as well. And I'll, I'll touch on that um, kind of briefly towards the end. So they're blinded because they're filled with the wisdom of this world. And that wisdom of this world is not the knowledge of God. It is dealing with some of the knowledge of things that God has put into the universe and all the different dimensions. But it is not dealing with the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It is dealing with everything but. And that's why, whether or not it was right from the beginning of the seven sacred sciences that begat the polytheist religions and is part of that organizational structure all throughout our history and very dominant today, is that that organization that is running the sciences, that is running the media, that is running anything to do with knowledge, teaching, and learning, anything other than a reference to God, anything other than a reference to creationism, anything at all to do with God is not permitted in the theater of debate or research, or a possible alternative. So when we talk about this wisdom of the world, it is denying God, is number one. And so when you start to deny God, you start to suppress things. And when you start to implement the practices of what philosophy is, which is the love of Sophia, the love of wisdom, but of polytheist wisdom, and it's the theology of that of that belief system, then not only do they deny God, they try and degrade God. So it's always a sort of a horrific part of the knowledge is, is that they're trying to offend God. They're being beast-like. Angels won't do that, but they get their, their human uh, followers to do that, just as the demigods that they created as well are beast-like and have that beast spirit that are always arrogant and trying to defame God. And they're not going to give God credit for anything. And the only thing that they're trying to do is give themselves credit in their belief system and their gods for everything. So that's the wisdom of the world that comes through all of the universities and the education systems and the literature and everything that people interact with. So, And I call that this massive umbrella of brainwashing that has been overlaid onto into the world. And so that brainwashing comes in all sorts of formats, formats not just in the education, but in all of the literature. And they're brainwashed to believe in things that are not Christian, that are not the absolute truth. They are led to believe through some very ingenious, very well-written narratives and stories and movies and, and arts and you know theater and things like that to believe in things other than God and it is doing the same thing that the education system is. And so at every avenue, there's this brainwashing that goes on, and that's the blinding. And it's asked, telling you to suppress your spirit because it's about the soul and the body in this world, and it's the spirit in you that comes from God that is pushing back. That's the thing that they're trying to suppress. And so they want to get people to that point of being arrogant in their own wisdom. They want to be prideful like the rebellious angels, prideful like the Nephilim, and that they get people to a point where they love the world. You know, it's like that 
character in the Matrix, Cypher, if I've got the name right, who is out of the Matrix, but he wants to go back to the Matrix. He prefers the fake world as opposed to reality and embracing reality. Not that I want you to buy into that dualism of the Matrix. I mean, both sides are the same sides of the same coin. But understand that people don't want to deal with the bigger questions as to, well, what if that is real? What if there's angels? What if there were giants? What if there were demigods? Is there an end time? Then what? I mean, they just don't want to deal with that. And they and then they hit that sort of cognizant dissonance and they've been trained to suppress that back down so that the spirit can't come up and through and question things. And we have to, you know, if you think about it, we have to, when we want to talk with God, when we want to be in communion with God, we want to be um, praying to God, we have to be in the spirit. And that's what they're suppressing because that's where, you know, you get that knowledge of what sort of right and wrong that is coming up for you. And they're trying to suppress all of that, that whole complete morality aspect and into an illegalistic application as opposed to the spirit of the application. So that whole spirit that comes from God is designed to be suppressed within people. And so people can't see the truth. And even worse, they can't hear God's calling because of all of that that has been set in place. And so God is always calling. And if you actually can get rid of the things that are blocking it, the static and all the things that are distracting you, you could start to hear that calling again. And once you hear that calling uh, and you accept that calling, then all of a sudden it's not difficult to handle that cognizant dissonance that goes on with people. It becomes actually reassuring. Because I think everybody knows something's not right in the world. And everybody's known that right from the beginning. And that not being right is actually getting worse. But what's not right in the world is this wisdom of the world that is uh, designed to leave God out of the equation. And so the simple answer is why cannot people see the truth? They don't want to see the truth. They don't want to hear the truth because they have been trained mentored, brainwashed, and peer pressured into believing that to accept that would be crazy. And that's just, you know, that's exactly what they try and do. But no matter what, they cannot convince everybody. And so those uh, typically are, you know, the Christians, as, as we look through history, they're always the problem. And they always will be because once they hear the calling, they are seeing things in its proper light and they're seeing the difference between the lies that are taught to us and what is actually truth. So that would be my take on it. Yeah, that was absolutely great. Uh, I'll just follow up with reading Romans 1.28 and I think it goes perfectly along with what you said. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So great answer. We appreciate that, Gary. We'll move on to the next question. It comes from Instant Faith. And before I do, I'll just let everyone know, if you are joining in the YouTube live stream, I have uh, got a running list already of 10 questions for the live questions. So 
um, you know, prayerfully we'll be able to get through some of these, but um, if we don't get to your question, we will make sure that we add it to the list for a future episode. So with that said, we'll read the next question that comes from Instant Faith. Is it possible that the seals, trumpet, and bowls all occur in the standard seven-year tribulation period? If this were correct, then how would you modify your timeline? It's, a, it's an excellent question, and it sort of has sort of things that are dangling off the question that once you start to pull on the strings of the question, it, it goes in a few different areas. So the first thing I would say is that for the most part, I am a fan from my research of the seals and the judgments of the trumpets and the bowls are essentially in the seven years. I I'm, I kind of go a little bit back and forth and leave room that the seals could be starting to be opened just before, just before the start of the last seven years. But essentially we're in that sort of zone and we know what the last seven years are and the countdown for that is in Daniel 9.27 in the end time when an antichrist type figure who has not been crowned yet because he will not be crowned until the middle point of the last seven years, he will negotiate a seven year covenant. And so we know that that's the time frame. And if you look at Daniel and you look at Revelations, everything is centered around three and a half years of the first half and three and a half years of the last half. So very, very important sort of prophetic time markers for people to keep in mind. And we know it's in the end time because in Daniel 9, 26, um, where it says the end, you take that back to, to the Hebrew and that means the end time. So uh, we know those seven years are reserved as the last week of the of the 70 years, uh, weeks of years that were reserved to have everything played out in, in, in the Daniel prophecies. So one of the things then we need to keep in mind is we're trying to sort of make that as a reference and also answering before I get into what I was just going to say is that so my mind doesn't really change a whole bunch because that's my understanding, which is what I'm going to talk about now and how I kind of come to that understanding. We have to keep in mind that there is a fig tree generation and the fig tree generation is not going to pass. What we don't know is, is how long is that generation. It could be 70 years as, as the Psalms talk about or it could be 120 years. That's in Genesis 6-3. Some people think it might be 40 years in terms of a king's rule or a standard 40-year period in the Bible. So more of an allegorical sort of application. And we're not exactly told what kicks off the last uh, generation or the fig tree generation, except that I think Jesus talks about when you see the fig tree uh, blooming, and he's the one who kills the fig tree in Jerusalem while he was with us just before you know the crucifixion. When you see that fig tree blooming, and in prophecy the fig tree is the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, the visible part of Israel that we see today as opposed to the lost tribes who will awaken in the end time. But that's another story. And so having Jerusalem in the possession of Judah, the southern kingdom, is one of those key centering 
concepts that affects and is part of pretty much all end time prophecy. So all prophecy is not only centered around Israel, Judah, and the church, but it's also for end time prophecy, um, you need to be focused that Jerusalem needs to be in the hands. And so that happened in 1967. So, you know, whether it's 70 years from then or 120 years, we don't know. And does it have to be a full generation? We don't know that. But my gut feeling is, is that we are in the fig tree generation. So if that's the case, and I think it is, then we need to understand what Jesus said as he laid out his chronology of events with putting that abomination at that midpoint, which is that three and a half year marker in between the events that he that he set out. So he gives you the chronology by obvious markers. And he is telling us right at the beginning that there are going to be birth pangs or the beginning of sorrows. And those by the allegories as you take that back to the Old Testament definitions are like birth pangs are. They get stronger as you go and happens more quickly as it as it happens as you get closer to, to the birth. And we should see that in what the actual birth pangs are, which are wars and rumors of war, uh, famine, earthquakes, and pestilence. And although those things have been with us throughout history this is a quickening and strengthening over a shorter period of time all within a generation that is leading us to the last seven years and so we've seen some pestilence with covid start up and i think that's sort of the start of it getting stronger compared to you know whether it was sars or the swine flu and, and ebola a number of other scares that we've had this is the most I guess significant one that we've had in a long time and it's and it's and normally it would be a generational remembering and marking event. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you this is going to pale by comparison because things are going to get worse. And so if you imagine that they're probably going to have those birth pangs working together because famine can come out of wars and earthquakes and uh, so can disease and so this seems to be uh, an interrelationship there. And these are the same birth pangs that are cited in the seals and in the trumpets and in the bowl judgments. And this is, it's the same catastrophes. And so by the time of the opening of the seals, which is either just before the start of the last seven years, and by the time you get into the end of the seals, you're into the last seven years, you're going to see a 25% destruction of all of the population in the world, all of the vegetation in the world. And it's going to make these birth pangs pale by comparison. And the trumpets are 33%, which come towards just before the midpoint of the, uh, uh, of the last seven years. And then the bold judgments sometime in the last three and a half years, likely in the last year in the day of the Lord and the year of the Lord and after the year of the Lord's favors. So just sort of give you a kind of an understanding of what I'm talking about here. And so coming back now with laying that down in terms of the timing and the, of the seals, uh, the reason why I'm open to 
the seals being opened just before is that Revelation 2.10 talks about 10 days of tribulation. And that's more than seven years. Just 10 days or, you know, or a week and almost a half. So the days as a year, as what's talked about in, in Daniel in terms of a day as a year, is in the last week of, 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 of the prophecy, it's the last seven years, the number seven. And that the last seven years is split out, split out and counted out in three and a half year portions when it's talking, whether it's in Revelations or in Daniel. So everything sort of lines up on that. So there's a tribulation that happens 10 days before. And I think that's when things are really starting to move together, where you've got cat catastrophic things coming together at a pace that is looking a lot like the end of days. And I mean, almost to the point of Armageddon, based on what we've seen before that. And that will have the opening for, create the opening for the false prophets that bring along Babylon. And Babylon is a religion, it's a geopolitical organization, it's a commercial um, organization as well, and it also controls the Ten King New World Order, or Nephilim World Order, as I like to call it jokingly. Um, that is going to be set up, that's going to be ten groups of nations all around the world, but it's going to control them. And with the signing of the covenant, it actually puts them into, into place. And that's the end-time empire that's talked about in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, uh, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17. And the universal religion controls this empire, which is why they, the, the ten kings will hand their power over just after the midpoint of the last seven years to the Antichrist, who's going to destroy Babylon and set up in Jerusalem, the new Sodom. And so if we understand that, then we can now sort of look at that the seals might be opening a little bit before the start of the last seven years. And if we look at Genesis or Genesis Revelation 6, 1, um, and 6.2 more, more specifically, in Genesis 6.2, it talks about the white horse and he who had a bow and a crown, and he went forth to conquer. And so a lot of people think that that is a warlike uh, understanding. But understand, Antichrist, if that's who you, you think that is being represented here, and I, and I think it probably is, but understand there has to be a platform built for Antichrist to take power or usurp power, you know, three and a half years after the, the negotiating of the covenant. Know then that this may not be a warlike type of uh, allegory that's going on in Revelation 6.1, and here's, here's how I get there. The bow is not a weapon of a bow. You take that back to Greek, and that's the uh, Greek word toxin, number 5115, and it means a simple fabric, which is really kind of odd. So, But there's something about this fabric. And then you look at toxin, and it's it's rooted in 5088, which is tikto, or tiko, as, as some people pronounce it, which means to bring forth. And that sort of is like bring forth as in travai, as in the birth pangs. It's kind of like an extension out of those birth pangs, and that garment may be understood as maybe a birth of an Antichrist, or more likely, a simple fabric 
that like the Roman Caesars would have worn or the Greek gods or the Greek kings where you got this, this robe that he's wearing that's coming forth. So he's entering the stage at this point in time. He's coming forth, but with this fabric that's got something to do with it. And then when you look at the word crown, that means that's the Greek word Stephanos which is defined as a crown, but typically not a metal crown. It's more of a wreath crown, more of, again, what would have been awarded to Olympic heroes in the Olympic Games, or if you get that laurel wreath crown that the Greek gods used to wear. So now we've got this godlike wreath from polytheism and we've got this garment and we've got this antichrist simulate figure coming forth and we have this negotiation of the covenant so he's coming forth to start rising but he will have a presence about him right from the beginning although he may be relatively unknown until he starts to get into this negotiation and when we look at uh, the word conquer it means to overcome so he's going to overcome something, not necessarily militarily. And it could be the hurdles to bring, bringing this whole world together. And he's going to be supported by the Babylon religion, which is controlling the Ten Kings and is coming along before the start of the last seven years. So that's why I would leave open the possibility that you would have the starting before the last seven years. And then if you look at that destruction, that may be what actually brings the world together to have this, this covenant negotiated of this, you know, horrific 25% destruction. But I kind of go back and forth on that in terms of is, is, is the covenant done and then you have that destruction or is that what leads to, to the covenant? So it's it, And we'll know better, you know, obviously as we get closer to it, but I try not to get too dogmatic on things. I, I bring my research and my understanding uh, to the forefront, but my approach always allows nuances and changes, and it's not a contrived preconceived conclusion. So as times get more clearer or if I were to find more information, I might be able to zero better in on it in terms of the exact start of that seven-year period as it relates to uh, the opening of the seals and the trumpets. But certainly most of that is all happening in the last seven years for sure. That was definitely a thorough answer. We greatly appreciate it. I think that uh, you could probably fill a couple, maybe two or three chapters in your new book with, with that information there. I hope everybody has their notepads and is taking good notes. And the cool thing is, if you are visiting us on youtube.com slash Garcia, you can always play back to be able to, you know, hear all of these amazing resources that Gary's sharing and quotes and all these concepts that I, I, I got to be honest, Gary, like you just know so much more information that I, I think that I could even research by the time. I uh, I get to be your age, so <laughs> I, I don't know. When did you start doing all your studying, Gary? Oh, I started in my uh, early twenties, and uh, I started because I had this urge to and a challenge to read a book, and then you know it was by uh, somebody I bought a lot of his books, uh, Hal Lindsey on prophecy, and I 
was determined to, because he scared the socks off of me when I read uh, Late Great Planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to verify what he was saying. Was he manipulating? Was he making it up? And, you know, the, the more I dug into it, as, as little as I was really not, because I wasn't very knowledgeable on it, I actually had to start reading the Bible again. Uh, and I found out, you know what, he's, he seems to be bang on, but I need to know more. That's because I'm a contrarian, right? And then I just sort of caught the prophecy bug, which is also matches my history bug and my uh, mythology bug. So um, it kind of went hand in hand because, you know, when you're dealing with prophecy, you're dealing with a lot of prophecies past and future and that most of prophecy has allegories that's defined in prehistory. So I just caught caught a bug on it and uh, have been um, obsessed with it ever since, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I definitely find a great interest. And this is one of the, the questions that you just answered that, you know, plagues a lot of people because there's just so much information, so many references to different prophecies. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out, you know, for the past 2000 years, people have been trying to apply it to their lives and, But now I really feel like we are in this generation where it's so crucial to do this research. So we we greatly appreciate you, brother. I will move on to the next question that comes from Willis Leroy. Gary, have you read the book of the bee and what are your thoughts? Well, as much as I have read, I have not read the book of the bee. Uh, And so uh, I, I, I am aware of it um but i don't have any real knowledge on it but um it's one of those books that you know it's come up i've been asked about it but i haven't um you know gone looking for it to to read it but i think maybe i'll uh, after this question it's got my my interest up and obviously there's something in there that willis uh uh, would like to have my opinion on um so if he's in the chat room maybe just narrow down a question and just because I haven't read it I don't know what's in it but I could make some comments about what he's talking about and if he comes back with that maybe I could you know answer some of those uh, questions that he may have or why he wants an opinion on this book definitely we'll have to send you a copy of that uh, to make a note of that Uh, we do offer that at sacredwordpublishing.com as well and I, I from what I remember, it's a lot of the stories of the martyrdoms of the apostles and uh, things like that. But we'll move on huh. to the next question that comes from Gad the Seer. Do you think there is any possibility for the peace deal to kick off the seven-year tribulation? And could it go under the radar, for example, by being signed in private, or has it already been signed? Well, I think there's already been agreements that are signed to try and put this thing together. And there's organizations that have been working to put this together for a long time. And they, you know, that's why they call this period on the polytheist side is the new Atlantis, because Atlantis had 10 kings. And that's what they're trying to recreate in this world where they interacted with the gods, as we would understand it from a Christian perspective, the fallen angels. And so they're trying to recreate that and have this rendezvous with destiny. So there are agreements, not that everybody's going to live up to the agreement, because there's 
power-hungry people all around the world. And that's why you have China um, pushing back and doing things that you know, the Europeans aren't happy with. And the Russians were doing the same thing. And one could argue that President Trump was pushing um, for a bigger role for the United States as opposed to less, which is what the prevailing European thought would be so that they could have a more equal 10 groups of nations. And for people who may not be aware of it, the Club of Rome is one of the organizations that reports quite far up the chain on the on the what I would call a tree trunk of of organizations and one of the branches that would intersect in terms of the secret society. So likely above the Rosicrucians, which are 50% pure blood, so either into there, but more likely into the committee of 300. And in the 60s, when they were created, uh, and they, they've created a lot of policies that people aren't familiar with, it, that, they're, that they're the ones who came up with it, like peak oil and overpopulation and uh, global warming and a whole series of other things that have affected our uh, media and politics ever since. But they, 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 at that point in time, separated the world into 10 groups of nations or trading blocks or spheres of influence in preparation for the end time, which they thought would probably come about in the 80s and the, and the 90s. So you understand that they're always trying to bring a, this about, just as the spirit of the Antichrist is always out there. They just don't control the timetable. It's only the God of, uh, of all things, the omnipotent God who controls these things. And until the restrainer is removed, it's not going to happen. But they're going to be continually pushing to try and bring it about. Now to get to the point of the question. I don't think that the actual covenant goes on under the radar screen because it has certain implications that have to be visible. So you have to have these 10 ruling kings and they have to be answering to this universal religion because universal religion controls them. And it's actually uh, through the false prophets and the conversion of the people is going to permit these 10 kings and will control them until they unite with the rising star of Babylon, Antichrist, at the midpoint of the last seven years to totally destroy Babylon. And, 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 and they will hand over their power to, to Antichrist. So we're going to see those 10 kings. We're going to see the universal religion. And we're told that the people of Judah who are in the land of the covenant today will be forced to end their sacrifice at the time of the abomination with three and a half years left remaining. So at the midpoint of the last seven years, just as it's described in Daniel 9.27 and, and uh, Daniel 12.11, which is, again, supported by Revelation at the timing of Antichrist coming to power. So that implies that they're going to have sacrifice on an overspreading or an extremity or a wing of the temple, depending on which English translation that, that you're reading. And that implies the universal religion is going to be able to have that put in place because you're not going to have this bashing of religions, which is why you have that tribulation that happens beforehand is you need all of this to sort of settle out. So those things tell me that it will be quite visible whether or not it's a public signing or not, but there will be a formal signing of the covenant when all of those, let's say, stakeholders, geopolitical uh, 
things that need to be in place and theological religious things are put in place to have that universal religion, which is, I think, the original religion of the antediluvian epoch, uh, which I call Enochian mysticism as the sponsor of that, Enoch, son of Cain, who worked with that with the seven sacred sciences that partnered with the fallen angels and took that knowledge to a whole new level that brought on the flood, as well as partnering to create the, the uh, Nephilim, and uh, the kings that took over the world, which is that organizational structure that crossed the flood and is, going, is still out there today and will become more visible as the end time comes along. And that's why Babel is the allegory for Babylon, because that's where that antediluvian religion crossed over, according to what the polytheists believe with Nimrod and Hermes, and Nimrod being that sort of archetypical Antichrist figure. So I think those things are too visible for people not to notice. So whether that is in place, whether or not there's this official signing or not, it's going to be noticed. But I think the reason why it's also going to be visible is that this is the time that vaults Antichrist to his ascension over the next three and a half years to become the false messiah, to become the king of the world, to become this world dynasty that's going to rule for their fake counterfeit uh, millennium that they're going to, to promise. So I think that fame means that it's going to be very visible. So I would say it's not going to go under the radar screen. Yep, very good points. I'll move on to the next question. It comes from Will Bentanker. Who do you think the two witnesses are? I've heard a lot of opinions on this, but what is yours? Well, it's a really great question, and it's just uh, one of those things you just love to talk for an hour on or two and with different people and get everybody's different opinions on. So um, I, I think they're human. Um, so even though Zechariah 4 talks about uh, the two anointed ones uh, that stand before the Lord um, and they're not identified, they may be, that is a prophecy as well, so it could be prophetic of the two witnesses. Uh, there's a good case for that this could be uh, Jesus coming back, um, but it doesn't really fit with what happens with the two witnesses at the three-and-a-half-year point. But that's certainly one theory that this this is, uh, you know, very powerful beings, more powerful than, than humans, and would include um, probably if you've got two there, Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit. But typically we understand it as being two humans. And so what happens in, in Revelation 11 is that after the abyss has been opened, and we know that the two witnesses are going to have a three-and-a-half-year commission to preach to the world and prophesy to the world, and they're going to be absolutely hated by everybody in the world, and they're going to have a celebration like Christmas once they're, when they're killed, they're going to suffer that first death, and then they're going to be resurrected back to heaven, and it will astonish everybody. So typically we're looking for people who I would think uh, who have not died. Now, I, I am open to the idea that it could, you know, it doesn't have to be that everybody suffers the death once except for the people of the rapture. 
but typically I, I, I lean on the side of it has to be humans and humans that haven't died. So either it's people of this time, which I don't think so, I think it's people of the past. And so now we've narrowed a list down uh, to very, very few. And we also know that we have some interesting people that could be part of that mix. Um, although a lot of people like to keep put Moses into the mix because he's part of the transfiguration, we get an accounting in the book of Jude of his death and Satan fighting with uh, Michael over the body that he did die the first death. But I, like as, as I say, I keep that open. So I'm not dismissing Moses completely, but keeping with the line of thought that I've just laid out that it's for people who haven't died yet, that certainly would include Elijah, who was taken to heaven. And Elijah would be a terrific testimony for the signing of and the actual living and prof, being a prophet of God in the time of the Holy Covenant before it was temporarily put uh, on the shelf so that things would have to be fulfilled through the curses of the covenant as opposed to the blessings of the covenant because Israel did not fulfill the covenant both north or south in terms of the kingdoms. So he could be one of them for sure. And we also know that Jesus is going to need somebody, well not need, but by prophecy, there's going to be somebody who is going to clear the way for him as John did in his first coming, and as Elijah has prophesied for. So he could be that. But I I see him more as part of the seven shepherds that's talked about in uh, Micah 5, 5, which is the time of the second exodus. So I see him participating in, in, in that. But again, I have to be, you know, we don't get a name of any of the seven shepherds, but we do know that second exodus, is, which is going to begin in the year of the Lord's favor, and well after the people have fled Judea, that the, and after the people of Israel have awakened, the northern people, the northern tribes that were lost into the world, they're going to be released from the prisons, and Jesus, as Micah talks about, is going to lead them in Exodus, and they're going to lead them to the wilderness where the people of Judea fled. So I, I, I kind of see, because of that, that I would see Elijah more as a role for there, but he could be one of those possibilities. And then, of course, we have Enoch, son of Jared, uh, who was taken to heaven at 365 years, and he would be a great witness for what happened before the flood as warnings as nothing is new under the sun and these are the days of Noah and it's exactly the same thing that happened there and it's happening now. He would make a terrific witness on that and a testimony of those antediluvian times just as Elijah would be a great testimony to the Holy Covenant and that everything talked about in the Bible that was given to Moses is accurate and true. But then there's two other ones we need to keep in mind. There's an interesting disciple called the disciple Jesus loved that's talked about. And what's interesting about this particular disciple, although he's not technically named, we learn a couple things about it in, in uh, John when you, uh, in the book of John, the last chapter, uh, starting at about verse 21. And 
it says sort of paraphrasing uh, what it says there that uh, this disciple Jesus loved will tarry or or live until he comes again and he says it twice but he did he also says he says I'm not saying he's not going to die but he's the one who testifies to and wrote all of these things down so he would be a great witness for Jesus so when I look at the two witnesses, I think, boy, wouldn't it be the best witness is to have somebody who was there at the time of Jesus testifying to the new covenant and that Jesus, our redeemer, wasn't made up, that he actually died on the cross, which they're going to deny as we get into this universal religion, and that he was there and saw it and bore with his own eyes that witness. So it would be a great witness, but we don't know who he is. But it's interesting, though, that um, we do get told about Lazarus in the book of John. And in verse 1136, it talks about this is the one that Jesus uh, loved. Behold how he loved him. So I don't know of a more of a smoking gun as to Lazarus. I'm not saying it is, but if it's the disciple that Jesus loved, it would be a terrific candidate. And Lazarus is the one that Jesus raised from the dead. But he didn't, he's already died the second of the first death. So it's, you know, I, I, I put him a little bit further down for me. I leave that one open. And then the only other one from the New Testament that might be that I could see would be a fellow that is named uh, uh, Nathaniel, or Nathaniel, as is, is, you could also pronounce it. Um, and the reason why I say that is because he is the one that uh, Jesus said there is nothing false in him. And he's a true Israelite. And that he's going to see the heavens open and the angels descend around Jesus. And this, to me, happens when he's ascending to heaven, but he's not mentioned in the names in terms of being there at the time of the ascension. So those are my candidates, and I can make a pretty good case for each of them. I just don't know which one it is, and I'm thinking we're told that we're being told that we're not supposed to know. Otherwise, we would have those names. And purposely, there are more than one candidate. And that's why even Zachariah, when he's looking at the two anointed ones, doesn't know who they are. And I think that's why. But those would be the candidates. And if I get pushed to say, who do I think it's going to be? I, I kind of go with um, Enoch and... Um, the disciple uh, Jesus loved who, you know, wrote everything down and testifies for him, whether or not it's Lazarus or Nathanael, or some people think it might be John. I, I just have trouble making that case for John in terms of the scripture for how that would sort of fit in. But um, let's just leave it at, as the disciple Jesus loved. Definitely a, another mystery that has a lot of us looking and it's one that's, very fascinating and very intriguing. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up, you know, Zechariah chapter 4. Because there, you know, he he asked the angel showing the vision multiple times. Like, what are these two olive trees that, that stand by 
the menorah and pour their oil out into it. So really interesting, you know, uh, we, we've had a really awesome show so far. We're getting ready to move into a commercial break. And before we do, do you mind letting everyone know how they can get in touch with you and where they can find your work and specifically your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy? Sure. Um, the best way to get a hold of me is through my website. That's the Genesis6Conspiracy.com with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on the website, uh, there's a contact the author icon that you can email me uh, a question or comment or if I've got information on this or that, I have lots of documents that I, that I give, give out at no charge. Uh, that's where you can also get a signed copy of my book and you can read a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters that are on the website. And I think you'll find the chapter names absolutely fascinating and, and the generous excerpt will give you a really good feel for whether or not it's the book for you or not. And you can get a signed copy there from me or you could link over to the Kindle version and get the digital version or to barnesandnoble.com and over over to amazon.com uh, and order from there and if you really wanted to support which i like to do your local bookstore it's distributed by bookmasters and you can order it through the store if it's not on the shelf and they can bring it in on one of their orders the other way to get hold of me is through facebook that's the only social media that i've got up right now um, that i'm working with and i'm going to keep that up until i try and figure out where is the right place to be going and um, where is it going to be less sense censorship that's out there and is going to be up for a while so i'm trying to figure all of that out and in the meantime um, that's that's the best place to get a hold of me on social media and through messenger is usually the best way or post a question on my timeline definitely we appreciate all of the hard work that you do and you know you also have the there's a facebook group the genesis 6 conspiracy that has a ton of great content coming from you know it's called social media for a reason you know there's a, a large social gathering of people that are doing their different research and we're able to share uh, on there of course we know that with all the big social media these days there is a lot of censorship and even on the platform that we are live streaming on there is a, a lot of censorship but thankfully we haven't gone down yet and Thankfully, your Facebook account is still up and running. I, I, I feel like that time is definitely coming where, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing like the beginning of the, the same type of thing we saw in Germany, where we're being labeled as the others, right? Because we have a conservative opinion and uh, we see it all around the world now that Christians and conservatives are, are we're just being looked at as the evil ones and it's really tough to find anyone as we were told in Amos you know that there would be a famine in the last days for truth and how true is that that there is a famine uh, but we appreciate your work brother Gary and we'll be right back for a second hour everyone As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. 
In our generation where wisdom has increased, as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth, and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com. But there is a place where we can come together. The Digital Readers Club is our online ecclesia, meant for those who've forsaken churchianity, but still want the closeness of a family to study with. Join us every Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time to put together the puzzle pieces of truth scattered throughout the ancient scriptures. Your partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya. Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers. We thank you for joining us in hosting Secrets Revealed, Momentary Zen, the Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation. Become even more involved? Please visit patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world.
right. Thanks for listening. While we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to our Ask Me Anything episode 21 with author and researcher Gary Wayne. I hope everybody had a nice top of the hour break. We're going to get started with the second hour. And we'll get started with our first question of the second hour. It comes from Sun Da Music. Why is music one of the sacred sciences? What did they use it for in the beginning? Excellent question for sure. And for people who may not be familiar with the sacred sciences, and I mentioned it probably a couple times in the first half, those are the seven liberal arts that you know today. And those are the seven sacred sciences, as they were called, and particularly with the secret societies and with masonry. And when I'm talking about masonry, it's the original Royal Masonic um, organization where Freemasonry is sort of part of that whole organization, but it's just one of, but this is the ancient Masonic organization. And Enoch, son of Cain, received knowledge from... um, Cain through Adam, that Adam learned in Eve according to their belief system, and he funneled all of this knowledge that Adam had learned to run this huge facility in Eden and all the technology and everything that it needed, the knowledge it would take to run orchards and ranches and crops and things like that, and whatever else he was doing um, was split into seven sciences. And music is one of those. And the seven sciences is what merged with the illicit knowledge from heaven uh, that took the technology to a level that we don't have today, but we're catching up to. Um, And again, I know I probably opened the door that people aren't familiar with my work um, that I don't have time to talk about today. But if you get a hold of me, I can give you a little bit of information on that. Uh, So anyways... Music is one of those seven sacred sciences. And so the question is, is what, you know, why is it and what did they use it for in the beginning? So understand that, you know, music was important to Pythagoras, who's one of the post-Diluvian patriarchs of the seven sacred sciences. And I won't go into all the different patriarchs as represented them both before and after the flood, but he was basically a proponent of math and arithmetic and geometry. And geometry is the fifth science, um, which masonry takes their name from. But arithmetic or math and advanced math is what Pythagoras was, was really sort of famous for. And music has sound waves and mathematical properties within those um, sound waves and the acoustics and all of that thing, all of that can be expressed in mathematical terms. So in understanding the technical aspect of music, it takes math and that's part of the science that goes with it. And it's got form and it's got rhythm and it's got musicianships. And also understand that you have musical scales, which is also sort of mathematical And so I just wanted to sort of lay that out, that it is way deeper and more advanced than what people just give it credit for than other than, you know, it's very, very pleasant as well. And it's used to honor God, uh, but it's also used for other things. And so if we look at Satan, for example, he in Ezekiel 28 
you know, is talked about as having, you know, tambrettes and pipes or tabrets. And those tend to be musical instruments. And so there's a relationship here with angels and with fallen angels that music is also used and that it has power within those vibrations. So from a Christian perspective or a Judaic perspective at Jericho, those horns were used in applying that sound waves and the understanding of the properties with the ritual in honor of God of walking around Jericho for, for a week blowing these horns and then the walls came crashing down. So there's more to it than just the music aspect. There is a power that's held within the sound waves and things and so it becomes part of the occult. So if you go like to Mozart, who was a Freemason, he wrote the magic flute. And of course, that's kind of a grail sort of uh, story that he's encoded in there. But understand that this is part of the occult understanding as well and the occult usage. So that if you now look at uh, a couple other examples, you've got the pan god, who's a satyr god, a degraded god after the flood, and he's he's using a flute, and he's using that to seduce people. And you have the fairy tale of the Pied Piper that is leading people astray. So you can use the music to seduce people away from God and into their polytheist rituals and things. So People ought not to be surprised that this is what is brought into the occult rituals, music. And within the rituals, and a significant part of the occult are spells. And spells can be, can be issued um, and directed in combination with music. And so the science of it that the occult uses digs into that aspect of music, but in the power and the things that they can do with it that are not designed to honor the God of the universe, that are not designed to give God credit for anything, and are designed to lead people away from God, and designed to honor their own gods. And so that's why you have so much demonology associated with modern music because we're getting closer to the end time. Definitely, it seems like music is a, a weapon these days. Uh, you know, it, it can be a calming, uh, beautiful thing to, to relax with and to worship. Of course, we, I believe the angels, you know, sing to the Most High continuously, and we know that the, the stars have a resonance and angel, the angels have a, a resonating uh, tone and all together that you know it can sound like a choir but you can also make distortions and, and cause interruptions in our thoughts and uh, influence you know our, our bodies to be angry or to be you know certain ways so yeah, I really uh, appreciate the way that you put that there you know with the demonology inserted there's definitely uh, you know it can be used to worship or to create chaos it's very very much like a sword and a plow 
Uh, but we'll move on to the next question. It comes from Irresponsible. Will some of us fight the demons from the abyss? Yeah, another really good question. And uh, one thing I should um, backtrack on, on some of the things I've been talking about in terms of the sciences and things. And what you were just talking about, Justin, reminded me that um, I need to be vigilant when, we, when we're talking about these things. I don't believe that knowledge is, is evil uh, or bad. Uh, I don't believe music is good or bad. It's how it's used that determines whether it's good or bad. So we want to make that, that the case. And as with technology and all knowledge, we know it's a double-edged sword. So it's how it's applied and what it's being done to do. It's either being done to honor God or to destroy humankind so um and lead people away from god which is why i say destroy humankind so that's that what we need to keep that in mind so um back to the question about will we be fighting demons from from the abyss um if if we're still alive when the abyss is open and as i mentioned earlier in the show i think that happens towards uh, the midpoint of the uh, last seven years certainly before the two witnesses are killed, likely at the time of the Revelation 9 war, which is going to be the counterfeit Armageddon, which matches up with Joel 1 and 2, not Joel 3, because that's the Armageddon war, and the, the Revelation 9 war, where the abyss is open, also matches up with the Gog and Magog war. And again, in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, we know it's in the end times, as, it's, as we're told in Ezekiel 38 and in Ezekiel 39, it happens before the second exodus. So, and second exodus is mentioned in, in at the end of chapter 39. So, having said that, we have things coming out of the abyss. So, what is it? Well, obviously, there's going to be the worst of the fallen angels and the impassioned ones. So, we're going to have that. But we also have these, whatever these scorpion beings are, and they could be classified as a type of demon um, which is different than a fallen angel as a demon and these are beings that still follow in the hierarchy of the angelic rebellion but they're not full gods or not full angels and so they can be created within the physical universe they could be created between the gods or they could be created as a nephilim as in a demigod or a demon god and so we, we should be prepared for all of that. And in that sort of light, just in case people are interested, I think they're actually the what they call in the, uh, the scorpion beings. I think what they uh, are called in the Sumerian pantheon were the uh, Akrabbalu, Akrab being the Hebrew word for scorpion, and or they're also called the Gerdabalu as well. And these were created by one of the parent gods, uh, Tiamat, which is a, Le a Leviathan-type uh creature uh, that is also killed just as Leviathan was in, in the antediluvian world and she created these beings to guard the uh, sun worshiping temples um, you know the religion created by Enoch to worship the, the fallen angels who provided the additional knowledge and to also guard the uh, passageways to the underworld and they were also there to protect the parent gods from the offspring gods and they had the power to destroy the earth so the images that come out of sumeria um, are exactly in the descriptions that come out in some of the sumerian epics about these these beings are exactly like 
uh, what's talked about in uh, Revelation 9 in the abyss. So that are led out by Abaddon and Abaddon, Apollyon, depending on um, both meaning destroyer. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. Um, Abaddon being Hebrew, Apollyon being the Greek. So we have those, and they could be classified as demons. That's why I, I say we will be dealing with them. And they're the ones that, uh, uh, you know, they sting people and you can't die for five months. So it's like, this is a horrible thing. So uh, we could be dealing with those. And we also know that some of the Nephilim and Rephaim spirit demons whose bodies were died or they were killed, they're located there as well. And how do we know that? Well, Ezekiel 32 tells us that. And it goes from about verse 23 to the end of 32. And the whole chapter is kind of related to 31, but the whole chapter is about Pharaoh and these, these creatures that are in the uh, the prison of the uh, of the abyss, but in graves and capsules that are alongside of the abyss, and they're the terrible ones. They're the ones who caused terror in the land and who were slain. And it has names like Asher and Meshech and Edom's kings and Elam and Tubal and the princes of the north along with the Zidonians. And all of this, as you dig deeper into the deeper meanings, are associated with Raphaim uh, that are talked about after the flood. But one would presume the worst of the Nephilim before the flood are locked there as well. So they're going to be released. Now, they don't have a body. So they're going to need bodies when they're released, whether or not they're clone bodies, whether or not they're some sort of, you know, combination of uh, transhumanism, uh, whether or not they're some sort of, uh, you know, advanced, high-tech, uh, created like robot-like bodies. They're going to have bodies to interact with the world. And just as Jesus talks about these demon spirits, they are in cold places and they need a place of rest and they're thirsty and they're in dry places. So they need to have a, a place of rest and also a body, which is the oiketarian, which is the, the habitat, the dwelling place for a spirit to interact within the world. And so when you now look at like the Gog and Magog war, which is that same time frame that we talked about, understand that Gog and Magog were the names of two giants in Greek mythology and history, and they're the offspring of the parent god Iapetus. And it's interesting that the descendants of Japheth take those names. Uh, I think those names were probably different, but because they would have intermarried with the Raphaim, I think, shortly after the flood, they're taking on some of those names, which is not an uncommon thing as you dig into the names of many of the people in the early post-Diluvian world. That's actually quite common. And so these are the beings that I would say for sure we're going to be dealing with uh, that, uh, that are coming out of the abyss. So the ans simple answer is yes, we're going to deal with some of the demons. That's a pretty wild thought. <laughs> but we'll move on to the next question. It comes from Vahid M., why would the kings of the world hide underneath the mountains if they believe that the day of the Lord is coming? They know scriptures too, right? Well, they do, but they don't believe scripture literally. Uh, they reinvent scripture. They take it to a, a allegorical meaning and that you have to be an adept to understand 
what's hidden underneath. It's a fairy tale to them. And so you have the superficial story, which is interesting and entertaining, but it really has no meaning or, or value to them. But what they decode in their mystical approach to things is what's written underneath. But they know that there's going to be a time when they're going to be standing up against Jesus and the day of the Lord. But they don't know exactly when it's going to be coming. Only God knows that. And it's held from them. So they're going to have difficulty in reading the exact outlay of events in the end time as well. So if I understand what Vahid is referring to by the the prophetic marker, I think he's revealing to Revelation 6. Um, and in Revelation 6, and certainly what my comments have been sort of focused on based on, on um, of them hiding in the caves is that this is at the point where 25% of the world is destroyed, right? There's war going on everywhere. So I don't think that hiding in a cave is going to protect you if Jesus was coming because he's going to find you and, and kill you at that time anyways. But if you're trying to hide and get away, you would probably do that. But what's more likely is that there is such a sizable war and nuclear weapons going on that they're taking cover in the earth because 25% of it's being destroyed. So as you see the elite of the world building underground shelters today, that's the type of thing that you're, I think you're going to see them scurrying into as 25% of the world gets destroyed and they're they're only concerned about themselves and their bloodlines not about humans in fact they think there's way too many humans and if you buy into what uh, was posted and written with the georgia guidestones they'd like to see the world down to 500 million people or less but just of their bloodlines and of their gene of isis as they like to call it the spark of the divine or the thousand points of light so that's what i think is going on there so vahid if that's not quite what you're referring to then maybe get something in the chat and let us know awesome answer thank you very much our next question comes from unknown does god have a name so holy that we can't say and is it in a language that we don't know yeah, I would say that that is absolutely true, that he has a name that we don't know, in a language we can't understand. And if we could understand and pronounce the word, which we can't because it would be so ominous, so immensely required of intelligence that we don't have, but even if we could, then we couldn't understand what it meant anyways. So I would say check, 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 and check on all of that. Absolutely. We don't have the name, uh, and who knows whether or not we ever will. But it is uh, it is a name that, that he has, but the intelligence that it would require would have to be provided, and it would have to be a level probably on his level to for us to understand. Yeah, definitely. There's There's no telling that the Hebrew of modern day is anywhere compatible with the ancient Hebrew. You know, like uh, after the, the second temple was built and Israel came back to Israel, you know, they barely even spoke Hebrew. And in Ezra, we know that the Hebrew uh, was actually 
convert it into an Aramaic translation, and that's the vernacular yes. that was using that was used by the Hebrews. So, you know, we get how we're supposed to speak from the Masoretic Hebrews, the same people who translated uh, Psalm 22, I, I believe it's verse 16, where David prophesies of the piercing of the Messiah's hands and feet, and they they turn that into you know, like a lion, my hands and my feet. So, you know, they added that school, the Masoretes, they, they added the Nikud and all the vowel markers, and they're the ones that are passing us down, you know, how the ancient Hebrew language uh, was supposed to sound. Uh, you know, I personally don't trust them uh, <laughs> totally, and it, it is something that is near and dear to my heart because I, I want to know the Father's name, right? But we know when the Messiah returns, he's going to come with a name that no man knows and that's the day that we look forward to. I will move on to the next question. Thank you again, Gary, for, for that answer. The next question comes from Jose Melendez. If we do something wrong in our dreams, are we held accountable? Simple answer is no, I don't think so. We don't get anything on Scripture that says that what we're dreaming about um, is something we would be held accountable for. Certainly, we do know that from what Jesus said, anything that we do in our mind it can is sinful as well if, if it's about sin. Um, but we are what we are. But we're only held accountable for what we can control. And so um, I suppose if you sin more, you might sin more in your dreams, but you've already done those sins, and therefore it's sort of part of that, and that's just sort of a manifestation from sort of the first sin. But here's kind of why I think that we're not accountable for, for what you dream, is that um, just being in the world, we're corrupted. Um, and being in the world, we have um, corrupting influences everywhere, which involves demonic and angelic influence. And just as God can give you a vision and a dream, I think a lot of people that might be out there would have experienced maybe some sort of a demonic or spiritual attack when you're dreaming. So you, they have the ability to get into your dreams and do things and you're not fully conscious. So you're not really responsible unless you, you know, gain that sixth sense to understand what's going on, that you're not maybe perhaps in a total state of sleep and be able to deal with it. So you're not self-conscious of what's going on, and it's your sort of body sort of um, and, and mind that is, as, as you are asleep, is, is settling things within itself, but it's also subject to that influence. So you're not held, held accountable, I don't believe, for... Uh, what you don't know um, that you're doing, and that is that's a state of regeneration. So I don't think there's anything in there that we should be worried about. But do be careful of that demonic influence when you're sleeping. Yeah, it's definitely important to to stay in prayer. Our next question comes from Rama. Is our God one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or three? That's a great question, and it's that was such an important question that in about a thousand A.D. it actually split the Roman Church. So Constantinople, which is you know the the Greek Orthodox Church of today, split away uh, over this whole debate. 
and it's one of those debates that you know still divide Christianity, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it should. And it's one of those things that we're trying to struggle to understand what the God, the Father, uh, and the Son and the Spirit. What is that relationship? And so, I probably can't answer it to people's satisfaction, but what I can do is is give some thoughts on it. That what we do know is that they're in perfect harmony, and they're the reflection of each other in all things and they're on the same page on everything but there seems to be some distinctions there and i think we would be remiss if we didn't recognize that scripture provides those descriptions for us and we need to understand that so that i think the best way to start understanding that is that um the messiah who becomes Jesus, so the word before he becomes flesh, um, is a distinction. Just as the Holy Spirit is a distinction. And this word that becomes flesh in the Old Testament is also described as the branch uh, in Isaiah 11.1 1, as a shoot of Jesse, but also a branch, as he's described in Jeremiah 23.5 and 3314 and we also have that same language used in Zechariah 3 and 6 uh, chapter 3 and chapter 6 so we have that distinction as a branch which we, we kind of understood as an extension of God just as I think the Holy Spirit is is, is God's spirit as an, is an extension of God and they do everything that God wants so Jesus is the Word of God who created all things, at the command of God, right? So he is the one who physically created all things, just as we're told in, in John 1, and he became flesh. And when he was flesh, he prayed to his father, and he told us to pray to his father as well. And when he was on the cross, he cried out to his father. And so there's a distinction. And then when he went back to God, he sits at God's right-hand side. So again, there's that distinction. And when Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came. So again, you get that distinction. And then you also have in Colossians 1, 1 he is the firstborn over creation. And we get that backed up in Proverbs 8, to 36. He is the first creation. So the word seems to be part of that extension that was created by, by God to do the beckoning of God as the Word of God, and that the Word of God is most of what the Old Testament is talking about. And that is what is made flesh by the Holy Spirit, who, who enters uh, into Mary and prepares this the <clears throat> place where the word Spirit is going to be uh, entered into so that you have that oiketarian thing, that dwelling place for the spirit, because you have a body, soul, and a spirit. And the soul and the body is the physical world, and the spirit is the spirit world. And that's the location that is built within Mary to become the flesh for Jesus. And so his spirit 
went into that and he ultimately grew up as a human, overcame the world and was sacrificed for all of our sins as the creator of all things. So there is no division in the three, but there is a distinction. And I think they are like extensions of or branches of God the Father. Absolutely. Really well put. Thank you very much for that one. Our next question comes from Jim Anders. Are we in a demonic simulation that has controlled the masses for some time now? And is there a war on ancient knowledge that is keeping us enslaved to the generational oligarchs? Yeah, a couple of good questions. So it is the occult belief that the world we live in, the physical world, is a, a matrix projection. Um, and that is like a computer simulation. So you can now understand the allegory that is going on in, in, the, in the Matrix movie. Now, we don't know whether that, that's the case or not. That generally would suggest uh, more of a polytheist belief system where as, as, as above, so below. And so everything that's going to happen is being projected in heaven. That happens in heaven is projected down on the earth. And it sort of goes into that polytheist belief system in there. I tend not to think it's a projection. I think this is a physical universe and that um, you have a spiritual universe in another dimension as well. And you have other dimensions, but I, I don't believe the size of the universe or, or at least what we can see of the universe with our own eyes is, is a projection. So that's just my opinion. Um, but certainly the polytheists believe, uh, this is, this is a projection or a matrix. Now on the war on ancient knowledge that is, uh, is um, I'm trying to recall what was said, but I think uh, kept uh, by the oligarchs. I think that that is uh, has been going on forever, absolutely. And you have to remember in terms of whether or not it was before the flood or after the flood is you had that organizational structure that was set up and where you have the Rephaim kings after the flood and you have the polytheist daughter of Babel religions ruling over the, the nations and the beast empires and except for in Israel uh, for as long as it was around. And you have within that structure, you have the bloodlines that controlled the religions and um, not only the governments, but the extended families of the ruling dynasties, which are the noble elite, because they're all sort of related. It's just, you know, what number of cousin are they to, to the original ruling class? And so they controlled the education and all of the literature and all of the brainwashing and everything from before. And so they have created this system all throughout history and what has been passed on to us to only make visible what they want to be known and to uh, control that information. And a lot of what they're talking about is encoded into their allegorical and taciturn language that they use on things like buildings and things like that, that as adepts, they understand the meanings. That's that story underneath that I was talking about. But they know the people uh, of the world, most of the mundane humans, as they would call us, uh, would not be able to understand it because they're not um, educated into the mysteries and learning those sort of secrets. So I do believe that that is going on, but I also know that 
There's also the Vatican that has been collecting knowledge and hiding it and keeping it in secret in their chambers below the Vatican since they took power in the 300s. So uh, there's more than just the, uh, the the bloodline oligarchs that, that are controlling that information, but both are using it to control that information for their own ends. Really great points. Again, thank you for that answer. Our second to last question from the list comes from Brian, and it says, I was glancing through the Testament of Solomon, and it shows him speaking to demons. We see their names and even what afflictions they cause to humans and even which angels would banish them. My question would be, could we use those names or even the angels named in spiritual warfare if needed? It seems we have a list of names and afflictions that could be very, very specific in spiritual warfare. What do you say? Well, I would say don't do it. And uh, what I do know is that, uh, and I'll start with Michael, um, who when he is dealing with Satan and Moses' body in, in Jude 1, he says, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't rebuke. He didn't invoke his name. He didn't invoke, but always God. And so in Revelation 22, you know, we're told, do not worship angels. Um, and that would be, you know, put our faith in angels and things like that as well. Um, and use them as an idol in, in any sort of way. And in Matthew 4, um, we're, we're only to worship God, nothing else. And our only intercessor between ourselves and God is our redeemer, not an angel, not a demon. And Colossians 2.18 says, you know, it says you shouldn't be worshiping angels. So I guess my point is, is if you're asking for an angel, even though it might be a loyal angel to help you in spiritual warfare, that's the wrong process. That's the wrong hierarchical order. I think you go to God and Jesus first and ask for help, and they decide what angels to send because they do all the beckoning of uh, God and, and, and Jesus. So um, I think that's the order that one ought to do it. And I know there's lots of accounts, not in the Bible, and there's lots of accounts that you know, supposedly Solomon commanded demons to do things. Um, uh, you know, that's a really bad idea, um, and I don't know whether that's true or not. I, you know, we don't have scripture on it. Um, I know he had a lot of wisdom, and I know he had, you know, the Spirit of God in, but Solomon also had a lot of weaknesses, and I, and I wonder with a lot of the things that, uh, was given to him, uh, I wonder whether or not some of that also contaminated him to a certain degree as well. But that's between him and God, that's for sure. But I would be not in any way trying to encourage people to approach angels and or uh, demons to uh, help in your spiritual war because you do have the ability to test them, but 
the deceiving ones are so good at deceiving. Like you don't, you don't really know who you're, who you're dealing with. So, um, but I suppose if you tested them, you know, are you from God or not? I mean, they would either answer or they wouldn't, but it's just something that I think you should not do. We don't have intercessors between us and God and let God send who he wants to help us in, in those things. Definitely, we're we're told to go to the Messiah to pray in His name, and you know that the Father would uh, answer our prayers and and grant anything that we agree on. You know, I, I definitely agree with everything you said. It's it's dangerous, um, but Brian did in in his email uh, let us know he wasn't looking to take on any fights or anything. He was just curious uh, what your suggestion was. So. We'll move on to the last question from the pre-made list of tonight. It comes from Jude Cast. What is the connection between the jewels and the priest's breastplate in Exodus and the jewels on the man featured in Ezekiel 28.13? Hmm. Well, the man in Ezekiel isn't a man. That is actually Satan. And he's a cherubim that was in Eden. There's, it's what I would call a dual prophecy. So um, when you're dealing with dual prophecies, you've got a prophecy for the time, as with the time of King Tyrus. It also has implications for the end time as to what's going to happen again in the end time, similar things, but you understand it through the prehistory. And in this case, it's talking about Satan as the cherubim. Um, who walks amongst the fiery stones, which is an oxymoron unless you uh, understand a little bit more of what we're trying to communicate, I think. Um, so in Isaiah 6, you have the seraphim angels who uh, work within the fiery stones ministering before God. And in fact, one of them picks one of those stones up, those coals up, and puts it on Isaiah's lips to take the sin away um, and acting as a minister. And so both of these descriptions, I think, are describing Satan. Um, and both of them walk amongst the fiery stones. And so he's cherubim and he's seraphim, just as he's described as a serpent and a dragon and the devil in Revelation 12, and the red dragon um, in also in Revelation 12, I think 12.3. And red is, as you take that back to Greek, it's the color of fire. So it's that fiery serpent, dragon, feathered um, angel. So he's both. And he may have had several titles. You know, in the book of uh, Enoch, you have, it's either a corruption or another name and a title for Hallel, which I think Isaiah 14, 12 is uh, the name for, for Satan before he was degraded to Satan status. But Gadriel is said to be in Eden deceiving Eve, which we know is not accurate. So it's either a corruption uh, or it is another title, and it means wall of God is, that, is what that particular name means. So... Yep. Uh, when we're dealing with those dual prophecies, they can be really confusing. But understand, it's about prehistory for the defining information that's important for us to understand. It's about the time of the prophet, and it has implications for what Antichrist and Satan are going to do in the end time. So now let's get to the, the nine jewels that he's described with. 
uh, if you understand that the seraphim angels are ministers, and you also understand that the Levite priests serving in the temple had 12 stones, Satan had nine less. So I think both, though, are indicating that that is sort of the vest um, that depicted the priesthood, and that we get from that that one of the things that Satan would have been would have been high priest amongst his many titles. But that makes sense when you understand he was, you know, probably the greatest creation um, of beings outside the greater uh, cry aspect of the godhood of the, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit ever created. And he was perfect in every way until sin was found in him and he rebelled. And so I think he was high priest. And I also think that's why we had the priesthood, which was with the Levite priests and Israel being a nation of priests set aside to bring about the Messiah, uh, even though we're having to do it through the curses of the, of the covenant as opposed to the blessings, it's designed to save humankind from this angelic rebellion and everything that has flowed out from that, including the creation of the giants as part of that rebellion and trying to, to destroy humankind. And so you have this priest figure that goes out and greets Abraham, who is the father of Israel and who comes out of the the... Jebusite city of Jerusalem and Abraham honors him as the king of righteousness and gives him a tithing but what's interesting about that and it does make sense if you if you start to piece some of this together I think is that Melchizedek in Hebrews is said to not have a genealogy or a mother or a father. And in fact, we don't get a genealogy for who Melchizedek is, who is the priest that uh, anoints Abraham and, and blesses him. And I think the Melchizedek is that sort of precognition of the coming word made flesh who became Jesus, who takes over that Melchizedek order after he overcomes the world after he's resurrected back and in the end time because he is immortal and will be the high priest over that Melchizedek order forever. And that makes sense because it resolves the Satan issue and the rebellion and the high priest issue forever. And I think that's sort of that whole sort of linkage and chain that people need to, to keep in mind on, on what's going on. So it's very important to pick up on the details in the Bible and picking up, uh, as Jude Cass has picked up on those jewels, is one of those very, very important details that gives you uh, an open door to a lot more insights, I think. Definitely. Thank you very much for that great answer and for answering all the questions that were submitted for our 21st Ask me anything with yourself. It's been an awesome show so far, and we have about 10 minutes left to get through some live questions. So, Gary, are you ready for the pop quiz? Absolutely. All right. Our first question comes from Cam Thompson. What's your opinion on the theory of the Basque and Berber people, which, a, which had a high percentage of RH-negative blood? Are they possibly descendants of Atlantis? 
Well, they say they are. Uh, so, in fact, in, in the mythology of the Basques, and understand that their percentage of RH negative goes, uh, depending on what researcher you're talking to, anywhere from 50 to 80%. And uh, RH around the world from a global perspective is only 15%. So a very, very heavy concentration there, just as you get... Um, a heavy concentration in southwest uh, France, and um, that's more like 20 to 25 percent. So the Basques say that they were the Atlanteans, actually call themselves Homo Atlantis, and that they survived the flood, and that they resettled Egypt, Scythia, and Sumer after the flood, and then migrated to uh, northern Spain. And um, we have a historical record of them showing up very early in time in northwest Spain, and nobody really knows where they came from. They say they have the pure bloodline, and the bloodlines that migrated out of the Middle East, with the giants being chased out and dynasties um, being conquered and, and royal families moving to form the royal families of, of Europe. But that there was a rivalry, and there's this always this power struggle going on with the various bloodlines around, around the world. And so there was a, uh, I guess, sort of an internal civil war, which creates the Basque diaspora. Um, because the families that had, you know, the bloodlines going back to the Middle East, they're saying, no, we're not taking orders from you, and they have this war that's going on. So I don't know what to make of all of that, but I certainly know it's what they believe, and that there's other people around the world that also say that they're partially survivors of the Atlanteans as well. So uh, the uh, Kishamaya in their traditions um, would say that they're survivors of, of Atlantis as well, just as the Aztecs take that lineage back down through it. So, And you get this strong tradition, and I write about it in, in the book called The Seven Sages of Atlantis, where they... Um, took the survivors from the flood and taught them civilization in, in multiple places around the world. Now, that's their one of their belief systems in terms of how people survived the flood, whether or not it's true or not, doesn't isn't really all that important. I think what's more important is it's what they believe and what they do with that belief system, just as with everything with the occult and the bloodlines, whether or not it's all true or not, is not the point. It's what they're doing with their belief system that's important. Awesome. Great, great question and great answer. Thank you very much. We'll move on to the next one that comes from MJM. I've heard the first seal called a false sense of peace. Is this correct? And could this be something like Gesara overthrowing the New World Order to kick off the tribulation? Yeah, I think so. I think there's 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 this sense of Babylon rising, the Ten Kings rising, the covenant being negotiated, that there's a sense that this is um, going to be the start of the new age, because that's the new age that they're promising, right? Unfortunately, 
it's destroyed three and a half years later and, and Antichrist sets up his own religion and, and everything else. But this is the belief system of, of all of those religions from around the world that they've been all been prophesying and trying to set up in this new millennium, this counterfeit millennium that they want to bring about that Babylon is going to bring in. Unfortunately, Babylon gets destroyed as well. So I think that that's exactly the case. There's going to be a very widely held sense of hope of what is going on, even though there may be other issues going on. And coming out of that is that rising godlike uh, antichrist going forth with that bow or that robe and that laurel wreath crown as he's rising with that um, fame from the negotiation that's going to actually take him to the top to be the counterfeit messiah. So I would agree that that's going to be part of a bubble, almost like you might call it the eye of a hurricane for, for a good analogy, because it's not going to last long. Yeah, great, great point. Uh, so we'll move on to the next question. comes from Facts Not Fiction. Question, what is the difference between the lake of fire and the second death? And or is there a scenario where one death is permanent slash final and one that is eternal punishment? Well, I think I think it's the same place so that if you are one of the angels, as Matthew in the book Matthew talks about, is that you're going to be sent to the lake of fire um, and the false prophet and antichrist in revelation 19 are sent to the lake of fire and the people who take the mark of the beast are going to the lake of fire and satan is going to go to the lake of fire at the end of the millennium and those ones that are identified in that list seem to burn forever which is a little bit different than the people at, that are coming up for the last resurrection with the resurrection of the dead that are sentenced to the lake of fire for the second death. So I think with the power that God holds with them, he has the ability to say that you can have a second death and just be gone forever and, and, and re-die instantly versus those who will have special punishment for the crimes against humanity that they committed and the crimes against creation. Yeah, great point. I will just read Revelation 21.8. It says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Great question. Great answer. Thank you very much. I think we might have time for one more. Let's see. That comes from Gad the Seer. Question, Gary, what is your take on the COVID vax? Is it potentially the mark of the beast? Uh, not, not this go around. I think it's, it's, it's um, technology that is developing that we need to be aware of because it's, it's, it's a radical change from having either uh, a vaccine developed from uh, from the original virus, one being live and one being a dead virus, so that you can develop your own immunities naturally to do it. Uh, these RNA, and I know there's a, a prefix on there, but to shorten it, the, these are RNAs, they send a message into the cell that is designed to um, 
get those immunities going in sort of a layman's term, as I understand it. So today, that's that's probably what uh, it, it is. Um, but it opens up Pandora's box, so to speak, and those portals into all the things that they could down the road do with that kind of uh, further developed types of, of vaccine so that you could imagine that it could be intermarried into high-tech AI bots and chips and things that you can have things that are being sent to your cells through messages automatically to not only give you good health and vaccinated against the diseases that are coming, but they have the ability through that message and that entry level to start changing things at the cell level. And if they can do that, it would infer that down the road, they could be sending messages to make changes to the DNA, which I think ultimately the mark is going to be doing as part of those who are going to the lake of fire who take it. It's also to be noted that also the people in the last three and a half years who worship Antichrist and uh, Satan will also uh, have the same punishment as those who took the mark. So um, you can make the argument that, well, maybe the mark you know, from that doesn't change the DNA, but I, th I think it's going to. And I think it just sort of goes to creating that new man concept. That is a violation against the laws of creation, just as the Nephilim were created before the flood and the Rephaim after the flood that were a crime against the laws of creation and creating immortal spirits within the, uh, within the physical world in a physical body. And all the other DNA modifications and horrible things of creatures, whether it's the Chimera or the Centaur or Pegasus or uh, the Unicorn or whatever other beast that was created. And believe me, the Unicorn wasn't a cute little thing they, they tell you it was. It's a whole different beast. But these were the types of things that went on before the flood that I think is captured in what is described about what happened before the flood, where the whole earth was corrupted. Not just the violence and godlessness, but the whole earth was corrupted. That's the Hebrew word shakath, which means destroy, decay, ruin. And I think most of the plant genome and the DNA in humans and the DNA in the animal kingdom was corrupted. And I think that's why God called representative species uh, of the animals to repopulate from Hi, the ones that weren't from the same with the eight that were on the ark. So I think that's what's going on there. So anyway, not yet is the, is the short answer. Right, well, it's been a great show, Brother Gary. We really appreciate you. And everyone, check out the description box below the video to find out where you can get in touch with Brother Gary. We appreciate you, brother, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Questions arise. Are the stories in the Bible true? What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible? Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? 
Check out swpcalendar.com to see when to join us for our next Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together.